0: After last week's drasha, of course, Purim arrived and I had threatened to shave my beard and so I did. But of course, as fate would have it, it always works this way where your insides and your outsides are somehow mirroring each other, reflecting off each other, playing with each other. So, of course, this week's theme is more about idolatry, more of the same. We had spoken last week about idolatry as wearing a mask just a short vignette that's not really related to Zavar, but I have to share it with you that um, for about a year, those who know that I play hockey and I'm a goalie, and uh, that's my position, and I haven't played for about a year because I got a concussion a year ago. So, of course, in the, in the, in the interim, in the last year or so, my son has become infatuated with, with hockey. Like, he's got hockey everywhere. He's got stickers on the wall, and, he's got, and his favorite player on the ice is the goalie man, but he doesn't know that his Abba is a goalie man, okay? So this week, I got a chance to take him down to the hockey rink, and, um, and to his radical amazement, and I mean shock, I got dressed in all of that big gear, you know, the gear that he's been seeing on TV and all, uh, you know, so the goalie man used to be called Mr. G., that was our, when I go to bed, we give him a story, say, Mr. G, and that's the goalie man. And he thought, oh, there's a big goalie man in the sky. I don't know what he thought. So now, all of a sudden, after Monday, I'm Mr. G. <laughs> and it's not a joke. I can't go home now without him insisting that I wear that goalie mask. <laughs> I'm sitting in the, in the living room, and it's a goalie mask. I brought him an old goalie mask, and he's like, he's looking, he's like, Abba, no, Mr. G, Abba, Mr. G. He refuses. So, of course, that story, you know, is very much about a certain form of idolatry, a certain sub, I guess, subcategory of idolatry in the gross form, right? Wearing a mask and never being able to take it off, or always having to live up to that perception that one has one, you know, that one time you were perceived in a certain way and then forevermore you're known that way. The only way now for me to get my son's love is i got to wear that mask. But seriously, that's one insidious form of idolatry that we've spoken about. We spoke about it last week. And of course, many of us have experienced that. It's not something new. I'm not telling you anything new that you don't know already. But in the next seven or, or I guess, eight minutes, I want to share with you two other moments related to idolatry from this week's Torah portion. Because this is the quintessential, this is the paradigmatic, this is the emblematic, this is the Torah's idolatrous moment. In this week's Torah portion, we interrupt last week's Mishkan and Tabernacle, and the week before the Tabernacle, and then we'll reconnect with the Tabernacle in the next two weeks. But for this week, we have Kitisa, we have the story of the golden calf. And there are two moments in this story, one having to do with what leads to idolatry, and the second one having to do with one of, one of the core mistakes that I think we all make after having discovered a mistake both in ourselves and in others. I want to explore both of them. Each of them should have their own drasha, but that's the way I am. I'm trying to squeeze everything in. So the first moment, everybody, comes in this week's Torah portion on, in chapter 32. Moses has ascended the mountain, right? Re- he's gone up to receive the tablets, and he's up there. And God is speaking with him and giving him all these directions. And then, at the end of chapter 31, that God gives Moses these two tablets, right? And there's a pregnant pause, and chapter 32 begins. And the nation saw, And the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, They say, Moshe said he was going to be back, as the rabbis say, at 6 o'clock, he was supposed to be back at 6 o'clock, and he's late. He's not here yet. And they panic. And in the panic, they conspire and they say, let's make ourselves... And Elohim, let's make something Elohim, a God or gods or leaders, whatever the, the reading is, that will now be our leader because this Ish Moshe, this man Moshe, we don't know what happened to him. We have no idea. This Ish Moshe, we don't know what happened to him. The first fundamental moment of idolatry in the subtle understanding of idolatry, not in the gross form. I'm not imagining any of you are going out anytime tonight, or I don't know, but I don't think you're going to go out and buy on catalog a little golden calf. I'm not nervous. But the Torah is speaking to us this week, not about gross forms of idolatry, but about a very simple prerequisite or preamble to the idolatrous moment, and that is an inability to wait. Wait an inability to hold the space. That in the anxiety that is provoked by not having what we want, in the anxiety provoked by our expectations not being met, in the anxiety being provoked by something not going as we had planned it to be, in that that itch that arises, when we can't hold the space, the Torah says that is when all idolatry, because we're speaking about the golden calf, this is it, This is the archetype of all idolatry. That that inability to hold off, that inability to hold back, that inability to connect with what is present in the moment, because this is what the moment is giving us, not what last moment should have given us or what the coming moment will give us, but this moment as it is. Aviva Zornberg says that is the hallmark of Children. I want it now, Ava. I want it now. No, you're going to get it in an hour. We're going to, no, I want it now. Ki lavo. He can't. Moshe is not here. And in a beautiful reading, Zornberg connects this with Winnicott's psychoanalytic approach to children's—the anxiety of children when the object, the object is no longer there. They don't have the object to hold onto. There's no Gaga. There's no. There's nothing. There's no to hold. It's so fascinating to see how we do with waiting as moderns. It's almost as if there is no longer time to wait. There's no waiting time. Every moment is used with some text message or an email. I have another two minutes to listen to a class. Why don't I check my stocks? There is no challenge for us any longer about how it is to hold space. And that's in in a gross level. But on a more subtle level, let's think about it more subtly. You come home and you come back to your family and the same pattern that has been going on for 40 years repeats itself. You sit down at the table and before you know it, the urge in you, you can't hold the space. You begin the process again the same action, reaction, the same pattern of cause and effect over and over and over again. And spiritual maturity would demand of us, can you hold the space? It's how often it is that we walk by in the streets. Those whom we can't hold in our minds and hearts because to imagine them in our hearts and minds, to hold them inside internally would be to feel their pain. And we can't hold that pain We can't hold the pain of somebody who's homeless. We can't hold the pain of somebody who comes to us who says, I'm getting a divorce. When we can't hold our own discomfort, we can't hold the discomfort of others. When our first moment is, I'm uncomfortable, maybe I should fix it. If our first moment is, oh, I can't hold this, maybe I should find a solution. We don't have wisdom to work with what's being given. We come from a place of fear. And when we come from a place of fear, we generate more fear. Fear begets fear. It's so fascinating that the, spe- the entire conversation this week has been focused on preemptive this or preemptive that, and this conversation about how we should do this and what happens if. And inside I'm thinking to myself, I understand the fear, but can we talk about the fear without jumping to reaction. Can there be some space open between fear and how we respond to fear? It is okay to be afraid. Every good parent knows that if a child is afraid, it means that they're alive to something. And oy if they don't have that, but to give them a sense that they can hold that, they can hold those feelings, they're not so uncomfortable, they're not so overwhelming that they're going to go to pieces. So the first mistake, in this week's Torah portion comes from the children of Israel who can't hold the space. They go to pieces. They don't know what to do with themselves. And the second mistake comes from an unlikely character. We're not used to talking about this character's mistakes. The second mistake is based upon a Midrash. After the children of Israel have sinned grievously, God says to Moshe, Lech, raid, go down, go down, come off the mountain, go down, kishichet amcha, for your nation has acted abominably, have acted destructively. So the midrash picks up on that last word, amcha. What does that mean, amcha? Anybody? Your, your, your people, and who's speaking? God. Listen to the midrash. God got angry at them. Moshe and Moshe came to appease God. God said, they're not my nation anymore. Amcha, your nation, Moses. Amar Moshe, Amcha Haim lama Adonai shehim Moses says to God, "You called them my nation, God? No, no, they're yours. They're yours. Even deeper, the midrash goes on to say. To what can this be compared? Lemelech SHAYELO kerem u'masru aris. The Midrash says this can be compared to, to a king who gave his vineyard to a tenant. But when the vineyard, I'm going to read it now in English, when the vineyard was, was full of grapes, he would say, wow, how great is my vineyard? But when the vineyard wasn't producing good, good wine and good grapes, he would say, wow, you have a rotten vineyard, my tenant. Says the Midrash, Kach Moshe. in the beginning, this is the way it was with God, said to Moshe, go take my people out of Egypt. But when they when they fell with the Egel Azahav, What did it say? God says, "Now it's your nation." Anybody ever have this? Your son is misbehaving. <laughs> your son is misbehaving," said the midrash. This, my friends, is one of the most amazing midrashim. It calls God. So, to speak on God's stuff. What do you mean, they're my nation, Moshe says? They're your nation. What, when everything is going well, that's when you're around, but when everything is not going well, then you hit the road? That's what it means to be committed, God. That's what it means to take them out of Egypt. That's what it means to be their God. That's what it means to be there for them. The Midrash goes on to say, How can you blame them? You put them in Egypt, they worshiped sheep in Egypt. I mean, come on, God. How are you forgetting environment affects behavior and so on and so on, God? have some compassion but more seriously everybody this is something that we do I was just talking to somebody this week and everything was great he said he was becoming a part of the shul that he belongs to out on the West Coast and this person was telling me about a particular donor who had stepped forward into a position of philanthropy and he was very gung-ho in the beginning and then he built up a program that he funded And then full-on, two years into the program, the program is already up and running, and there are people involved. He doesn't like what's going on, and he drops out, leaving everybody high and dry. And we do it every day with ourselves, in moments where we fall, in those moments where we need ourselves more than ever. When is self-love more relevant than when you've made a mistake? When is self-love more relevant than when you've screwed up? When is self-love more applicable and more necessary than at moments where you can't find it at all? When everything that you had planned to go a certain way, God said, it was going to be great, everybody. Lach, you were coming out with me from Egypt. It was going to be great. I took you to Mount Sinai, and now everything is far fallen. It's all horrible. I'm done. Thank you. Moshe, would you like to step in? No, Moshe says, no, 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 God. You have to finish what you started. These are two spiritual principles that any mature adult must continue to cultivate, waiting and owning. Waiting and owning. Those are Torahs that we have to, we speak about them here in Ramu all the time, the Torah of waiting. Siddhartha said in Herman Hesse's book that there are three great principles that make and distinguish between right, spiritual individuals and those who aren't on the path. He said, I can think, I can wait, and I can fast. I can think, I can wait and I can fast. I can wait. I know what it is to be patient and to cultivate patience. I spoke to a couple of my friends after Purim. I said, how was Purim? They said it was great. The, the kriya was terrific. I said, really? They said, yeah, it went so quickly. <laughs> I went to Minyan yesterday morning and said, I went to, I, I to Minyan yesterday and went to, to pray Purim yesterday morning and they read the Megillah and the, the Bal Kriya, the guy who read the Megillah was terrific. I said, really? How, wh- Five minutes. It was done. Chick-chock. <laughs> I think I can wait. Can you wait? Can you hold the space? And deeply, the question that we ask of God, can you step in, in stepping instead of stepping out? When the moment calls for it and more commitment is necessary, can you step in? Can you step in to take more responsibility, to take more interest, to care even more? Especially when everything in you is saying, no, I'm done. I'm done. So are you done? No, step in. There's more work to be done. So it is upon us to cultivate these two principles in our life, the Torah of waiting and the Torah of ownership. It's not upon anyone else, just you and me. And before we fix the world, which we want to fix, and we always talk about it, Let's look inside and see the work that still is yet to be done for each and every one of us as we make our way to Passover together. Please rise.